Today, we're talking to Eric from Flatfile about going deep on your tech stack, responding to no code with a yes code mentality, and more. You're listening to Joel Beasley, Modern CTO. So were you always into technology? No, actually. It's kind of funny. I'd probably refer to myself as an accidental technologist. Um, When I was an undergrad, I was a finance major. I was like, oh, I'm going to go work for a bank. I'll do investment banking. This will be great. That was the summer before the entire market crashed. Um, So I remember my senior year of college, you know, banks would come in and present at their career day and say like, hey, you know, check out how awesome Goldman Sachs is and how awesome, you know, at that time, Lehman Brothers is. And then, you know, some kid would raise his hand and go, hey, so what about job opportunities? You didn't mention any of those. And they go say, oh, well, but we don't have anything open right now, but we just had the budget to come down here. And at that moment in time, I was like, I should probably figure out what I'm going to do with my life because it's probably not going to be this with my 3.3 GPA. And what that turned into was me just looking around seeing where are people hiring? And it just so happened to be health tech at that point in time. You know, the whole accountable care organization thing was just taken off. And so I just said, cool, there's this companies called Epic and Cerner. Let me just go apply to them. And they were all really, really eager for technical talent, technical abilities that I just did not have. So I basically spent the next three months learning whatever I could about programming and coding and you know, anything related to software, and then took some tests, and they said, cool, you can come work here. So my first job out of school was at Epic doing technical services that I was in no way qualified to do, um, but it taught me how awesome software can be and technology just in general can be to advance um, in, in that particular case, it was the outcomes for patients or the way healthcare systems are run. But it also taught me that like, oh, I probably shouldn't be writing code every day either. And then how did you go from that to, hey, I'm going to embark on this journey of entrepreneurship? Oh man. So it, it's actually really interesting because I don't think I ever had an intent on starting my own business, but I've always been motivated to solve problems. Like whenever I see a problem that's out there that's just lingering, I want to solve it in some way or another. And whether that's by a, you know, working as a product manager at, you know, a growing startup, whether it's working in customer success at, you know, an established business, whatever it might be, it was just like, I see there's a problem here. Let's figure out how to solve it and what is the way that my skill set can best match with that solution. And for Flatfile, it just so happened to be that. It was, hey, I've seen this problem throughout my career. It's a challenge of getting data exchanged between two different parties, especially when there's a human involved. Let's let's solve this. And what's the best way to solve it? And at first I thought, well, let me go see if there's a vendor that I can work with that has, you know, already started thinking about this. And when the answer was, ah, no one has really thought about this that much. You know, David and I got our heads together and said, let's go start a company to solve this problem. How did you know him? Uh, it's funny. We actually worked together at Envoy. So I was leading up product at the time. He was leading up engineering. And one of the things that we were trying to do was to solve problems that existed around a connected workplace. We said, hey, we have all this great consumer tech, funny enough, around the workplace that people already have in their pockets. Like, how do we pull that into the workplace environment more so to help the company provide someone a consumer-like experience when they come to work. And so he and I were working together on lots of new products, uh, new solutions. We were working on our integrations platform. And there was this little problem that just kept coming up over and over again. And one day I kind of had enough and said, hey, David, like, can you go just get something that solves this problem of receptionist uploading CSVs of their employees. And a couple weeks later, he came back to me and said, well, uh, so I couldn't find anything, but I just built it myself and you should check it out. And basically that moment, we kind of knew at some point this was going to be a company, whether it was in three months or in three years. And previously it already earmarked each other as sort of like folks we would start a company with and just took off from there. I love it. Yeah, right when I heard about what the product does, and I'll have you describe it a little bit, mm-hmm. but I had built that, the, the base version of it into my own applications before, you know, obviously not as robust as your commercial product, mm-hmm. 
But that's what everybody would do. And they would just roll their own the best that they could. And then eventually a commercial product comes out that is really great. And then you don't, you can trust it as an engineer. And then you just integrate it right in. The only stuff that I had seen at all was uh, like address import books for marketing companies. There was one really janky one. I can't, I'm not going to say names, but I remember trying to use it and it just was not, not quite there. And it was, I think it was for one very specific company or very specific use case. But when I saw flat files, like this is awesome. Yeah, it does potentially take us on a tangent. It's, it's kind of funny you mentioned that, that after we started the company, you know, this is like category creation was all in vogue, right? Like you had these companies like Gong and Drift who were like trying to create their own categories and mm-hmm. crown themselves king. And we said, what's our category? And we talked to a lot of our customers and they're like, well, it's data and we got to onboard it. So why don't you just call it data onboarding? And that marketing tech you talked about is, was exactly called that. It was data onboarding. And so we kind of stole the term for the category from this legacy marketing tech that was doing the same type of thing as you describe. Oh, wow. That is so cool. And then where is the product at today? So you, you described that you met with David, you had this idea, he went and rolled something his own really quickly. And then you went out, did you raise money? Did you do cash on your own? How did you get the business started? Yeah. Um, so to start the business, really, we just, you know, bootstrapped until we had confirmation that this was, you know, a market that deserved venture backing. So for the first, let's say, probably year, it was bootstrapped. Um, we were, I don't know if David talked about this before, but we had a really cool way of paying employees with equity ahead of time. Like we paid employees with safe notes okay. um, so that that way we could get contributions from folks who had a promise of future equity in the company, presuming it becomes a real company. Um, so it kind of kept our cash burn low until we said, hey, this market is significant. And we got that from our first you know, 25 customers, a couple of which happened to be public and Fortune 500 companies. And they weren't paying us that much money, but we said, okay, if these folks are signing up for our dinky little importer, then what's it going to look like when we have a whole team working on this entire data exchange platform that we envision in the future? And that's exactly where the product is sort of going now, um, is that we have this data exchange platform that allows you to design for any type of data exchange flow that exists between a sort of like a third party that's out of your control and whatever normalized data set you want to get that data into. Um, that's a very academic way of saying data import. Um, but in a lot of cases, you know, there's cobbled together systems and tools or legacy home-built products that are trying to solve for that particular problem. Can you give me a specific example? Oh, yeah. Great example would be um, actually this notebook I've got here, um, funny enough. So uh, Workday. So whenever a company is deciding, hey, we want to use Workday for all of our HRIS, you know, all of our employee management, um, They've got to get all of their data about their employees and, you know, their pay structures and jobs and titling all into the Workday system. It's not just configure the Workday system and you're done. Um, And this is kind of a core premise of FlatFile as a business is that most software is an empty box and you have to fill it with data to do something. Um, It might do awesome things with that data, but without it, then you're going to be struggling to provide value to your customers because they're going to have to either create all that data from scratch um, or worse, they're not really going to see value until it takes a while for them to build up all the data that they need to see what they should see out of your application. So for a Workday customer, it would be, hey, we got to get all of our data from a legacy system like a PeopleSoft into Workday. And how do we do that? So tell me about the no code, yes code thing. Yeah, so the, I think there's been a long running trend probably over the last 10 years or so that said like, hey, we need to get more folks who don't know coding into software, right? So there's this whole idea of like, okay, let's find a way to take all of our software and make it accessible to someone who can actually build with it without writing a lick of code. And it's awesome for so many different types of applications and businesses because what that does is that you get these, you know, quote unquote, citizen developers who are out there and they're the subject matter expert, right? They know like, oh, this is how the charges should be routed through my billing system. And so they're in the best position to make decisions about how that should work. And oftentimes that, that is the right decision for a business. 
For us, we tried that route actually. So uh, one of the biggest probably strategic blunders we made as a business was we said, oh yeah, we want those citizen developers involved in this. We know that when data is being exchanged between multiple businesses, oftentimes it's not the developer who's the first line working with the customer on how that data gets exchanged. It's gonna be someone from a support team or a success team who may not know how to code. Let's get them involved in building out the definition of this system. Um, but the reason that failed for us was because that at the end of the day, whatever data came in and went through the rule system that was designed in Flatfile had to go out into a technical system that was owned by a development team. And further, we realized that it was taking us forever to ship new ways to actually engage or interact with that low-code system. And so we kind of made it a mantra internally later last year. We said, hey, we made this mistake. We're going to actually lean more towards yes code and take away a lot of the low-code configuration. But in providing a yes code type of solution, we also let our customers choose whether they want to have that no code offering available to their customers as well. So by saying, hey, we're, we're just going to focus on making sure that you can do the most powerful possible things and be able to cover every edge case and be able to effectively process data through Flatfile, you can design a workflow that says, hey, the first thing I'm going to present to my business stakeholder is a, a dropdown, which will then dynamically define whatever target data model and validation rules will go live in here. And then they can take it from there. That's pretty cool. Yeah. You have both options. I think by, by taking that yes code approach, we actually do get both options, right? And we can be less opinionated about how the software actually works, right? We can give our customers the opportunity to be opinionated about how the software works, which is, at the end of the day, way better because it, then it's going to feel like it's a perfect fit with whatever their use case actually is. And then is this something where I have to call sales and do a whole dance or is it self-serve? How does that work? Yeah, it's so it's entirely self-service. I mean, I think this is related to the you know, no code solution that we had built out in our previous version of the product was um, you did have to call sales, right? We were end up having just like endless sales cycles where we did all this configuration with people who didn't really understand what was happening with the data behind the scenes. They could tell us what the input looked like and what the output should look like. But when it came to actually thinking about systems design and like how we actually run this validation and in what order, it just took forever to actually scope that out and assess that with those folks. So now we're leaning more towards the direction which is really back in our roots of, hey, here's an SDK on top of a well-documented API. These are all the things that you can do. Here's a bunch of end-to-end -end examples to inspire you. Go get it. And as long as you then understand what Flatfile does, which is, we exchange data between businesses, um, then you can be off to the races and building pretty much anything you want. So if I'm a business and I want to get data into my application, rather than building it my own, I just buy it and my life's easier. I, I wouldn't even say just that, actually. So I think that's a question oftentimes that I, I probably already misused in this conversation before. But there's this question we ask, which is like, should we build it or should we buy it? And I don't think that's the right question to ask. I think the right question to ask is what should we build with? Because at the end of the day, even if you're quote unquote building it yourself, you're still going to be leveraging open source libraries, a programming framework. Uh, you're going to be leveraging potentially services that are involved in whatever delivery of that product or solution looks like. And so it's not really this, if you say build versus buy, it sort of sets it up as like, oh, we're either doing one or the other. Like more often than not, you're just choosing what you're going to build with across whatever stack you need for that particular solution. I get that. That's a good argument. You can still, I'll argue that you could still do build versus buy at a, at a higher level, but in the context of importing data into your application, it's definitely what tool am I going to use to help me do this faster? Well, I think it's like, I think it's also, you know, across software, you're starting to see this blending, right? Salesforce is a great example of this, right? Like Salesforce traditionally was a buy argument. Oh, we're going to buy Salesforce for our CRM. But now more and more you're seeing how companies are actually building with Salesforce as sort of like a source of truth on the front end of the house where you're talking to customers and prospects. And it's actually serving as like, 
your production database for all of your marketing data. And people are building apps on top of it too in order to extend Salesforce to work better for their particular business. So I think like more and more these software solutions aren't just ones where it's like, cool, I'm going to buy it, I'm going to click a couple buttons and then we're good to go. It's more like how do I build with this in order to you know, create the business model and ultimately type of outcome and value that I want for my customer base. You win. I like that. That's good. Uh, that's where I think the future is going. Yeah. Right. Definitely. Because it's a, it's a valid, it's a completely valid argument. I'm trying to think of ways that we can invalidate it. And I guess people are gonna have to email me if they have one. But if you, even if you go back 10 or 15 years, right, before the APIs and everything were household names, then you're still buying it and then fitting it into the workflow of how you want to work as a company. So I do like this concept of, of build versus buy being the wrong question. Yeah, and I, I think that also means that you can effectively evaluate what all of your potential solutions are, right? Like, at the end of the day, what is a business doing, right? It's an optimization of resources on input to create more value than the individual resources had beforehand, right? And it, that's the same with true with any individual software solution or with an entire tech stack, right? It's all about making decisions that fit with your business model and the customer experience that you want to drive. And ultimately, when you're making that decision, right? Like, sure, you might be buying by paying some amount for something here, but you're going to pay for that in another way, right? That's going to show up... Um, so I, my my easy to use example, I didn't want to use this as the first one, but like hosting, right? Who's going to build their own hosting these days? Heroku, man. <laughs> if you're building a small Rails app, that's my go-to. You don't but, have to do anything. You just see? push it to Heroku and it does the slug and figures itself out. And so we say that's like, a, that's a no-brainer, right? It's a no-brainer. There is a no-brainer for literally every specific business problem that you have out there. Right, there is some piece of software out there. Like, I, I would love to go through this exercise maybe after we're done recording and try to find a place where there's not software that could at least be part of a solution for a particular problem. And so, there's almost always going to be an opportunity to engage with someone who has built something that will you'll pay for, but you'll pay way less for than if you were to try and do it yourself. Yeah. And then for the tech stack, making decisions on that, impacting your business, did we cover that pretty well already? Or is, do you have separate unique thoughts over there? Well, I think the, the interesting thing about the, the tech stack side of things is more about how it relates to your business model, right? Like a lot of times when you're thinking about your tech stack, uh, oftentimes we'll think about like, oh, well, AWS is the same as Azure, right? And like swap them out, whatever. We need hosting. That's true to an extent, right? Like it's providing you a lot of optionality as a business. But when you make decisions about what you want to pull into your tech stack, that can affect your business model. I'll give you a good example from our business. Um, so because of the nature of our product and what we do, a lot of times we're working with customers who have sensitive data. And they say, hey, we actually don't want a you know, flat file getting access to this data. You say, that's fine. Like our job is to process it. We don't need to have access to the data. You can self-host all of the data yourself. And so we need a way to deploy to those customers our application and they need a way to host that application. And that all has an inherent cost to their business, right? So it might be like, okay, cool. We have to show you how much it's going to cost you to host FlatFile given this certain amount of usage or this estimated usage of the product alongside how much it costs us to, or how much, it, how much you're paying us to actually use that software, get a license to it. And so that can affect how you operate your business because, hey, we're choosing to, you know, host this ourselves, cool, this is a business critical flow every time we get a new customer, they're coming in with this data. But then, I don't know, flat file, we're not perfect, we have a bug, right? Well, all of a sudden, instead of getting access to the cloud version that gets an immediate you know, hot fix for that bug, you have to wait around for another deploy that then gets sent out to all of the different systems that you're using, right? There is a cost 
to making that decision, right? It doesn't seem like there's a cost because you're not paying dollars for it, but you might be paying in customer experience or implementation teammates who are waiting around doing nothing or customers who are just frustrated and wondering like why this isn't working. So I think all of those decisions have an impact on your like company business model and ultimately like financial outcomes in the business too. I think oftentimes we view, you know, the CTO's office is just purely a cost center and that myth should absolutely be dispelled, right? Like a lot of the decisions we make will affect our customer experience and our customer churn. And so I think when we're evaluating decisions about the tech stack, they should be evaluated not just from a technical capability perspective or a cost perspective, but also like a revenue driving perspective. How is this going to help our margins? Um, not just, you know, not just the costs. We've got a lot of CTO education to do. Maybe Josh can help me with this. Who was the lovely lady that Brad Sosa introduced us to? Uh, Rachel Lockett. Rachel Lockett. Yeah. I had her on and she was talking with me about how they're seen as the cost center, how they're not a part of executive conversations and all of these things. And I was like, I don't think so, Rachel. I got so many emails and so many LinkedIn messages from people that are like, Rachel nailed it. She hundred percent. That's exactly how it is. And so what I've come to the conclusion is, is I just surround myself with people that haven't, don't really have that experience that much. Maybe it's just the nature of the topics I'm interested in or who's coming on. Yeah. But knowing that now that, that the thing I thought was the 80% seems to now be the 20%. I think there's a lot of responsibility on the CTOs to figure out how to become valuable, more valuable from a business perspective because it, the only reason that would be happening is not because they're quote unquote mean, right? It's because it's not obvious that they understand and can bring value. I think it's it's been traditionally challenging to make an ROI argument for how the tools and systems that run your business can help you produce more revenue or produce better margins. But I've got like a, a great example. Um, hopefully Rachel's listening here. <laughs> so, so one thing we use at, at Flatfile, this is, you know, like squarely in office of the CTO type decision is for our front end, we use Tailwind. Um, Tailwind's just basically like a way to create and manage front end UI components faster and easier. And, you know, if, if you're, you know, just like, I don't know, VP of finance go looks at it and like, well, why are we paying $10,000 for Tailwind, right? And it's hard to argue, well, that's actually getting us back, you know, $20,000 in revenue because of our customer satisfaction. So I think there's, there is this like missing gap between like, how do we measure not just sort of like the cost effectiveness of all these things, but also how they're positively affecting our customer experience and how that customer experience translates into dollars. I think it's like one step too many oftentimes for a traditional business model where you kind of view it as like profit center, cost center, you know, and that's it. I just, I guess I'm young enough in business to where I never really experienced people being so binary about it. Because starting my businesses, it's just so important each specific part. You, you start with downtime. That's an easy one. That one's been around for a while, how they quantify downtime. Yeah. Customer experience, same thing. I It's rage. There's literally rage metrics in some analytic software from people rage clicking and they'll tell you where it's happening. I think it's a software called Full Story. But when I saw that, I, I thought it was hilarious because to find out that people have been clicking like on your site, they're not a sponsor or anything. I'm just really interested. Oh, no, in no. It. I, yeah. so I, it's, you, it's so funny you mentioned. I was actually in the room when we invented rage clicking really? at Full Story. Um, yeah. So you I worked was, at Full Story? I worked at Full Story. I was, um, I was a marketing intern for about eight months in the second year of grad school. Basically, I just stopped going to grad school and started going over to the full story office and working. But I remember we were sitting around, uh, the, there was like a little kitchenette area in that office we had in West Atlanta. And we were talking about how to describe like, like how do we describe this point of emphasis where like we know the user's frustrated because they're just clicking all over the place. Like we did all these studies around like, what are the things that people do the most when they are frustrated or when they're stuck and far and away it was just clicking over and over again and I, I want to say hopefully I'm not taking credit away but I think it was Jamie on the team who said like well they're just rage clicking and it's just that was it so thank you Jamie and the team 
<laughs> that was that's a good example. First of all, I didn't know that. I don't know if you put that in the prep, but I, I came across them a long time ago, and it was very much. I'm assuming how a lot of your customers find you, where I was rolling my own because mm-hmm. I did a real estate software. Yep. And what would happen is they would call up and say, "Hey, I've got this problem." Well, they don't know how to find out what version of the browser they're on. They don't know how to find out, you know, what were their last six steps. So I just wrote this basic monitoring JavaScript thing that would collect all the actions and then dump them, you know, into their profile so that we could have a better starting position to help this person. And then I saw things like Full Story and there was a couple other ones out there too. And I just immediately, I was like, not building this anymore. I'm going to go pay some money every month and get my life back. <laughs> well, I'll make sure to get an intro to Jamie yeah. after the show here um, so that that way you can get him on. But like, absolutely. I think a lot of it, you know, again, it's just about like solving a customer problem and solving it in a way that's valuable in you know, again, like probably my MBA is probably showing through. So I apologize to your listeners. But like, again, it's just about resources in for more value out than those resources in. And that's it. It's just as simple as that. So I think for something like Full Story, it's a great example where it says, hey, you can buy this, right? But like buying, it's not enough, right? Like I learned a lot of this at Full Story was our first customers we're not using full story in the way we thought they would. Like we thought there would be like, oh, there's these product designers and engineers who want to like really understand like the customer experience and optimize their products around them. It was a bunch of support people and marketing people. Mm-hmm. Marketing people want to know like, where do people drop off in the funnel, right? Like I'm trying to get them to buy something on my website, like what's happening here? And the support people were like, yeah, people don't know how to describe what they're doing. And so basically what we did was we, we said like, okay, let's lean into that and let's give people the tools to design their, their support model and their marketing model around full story is one part of that stack. And again, that's more of this mentality of like building with that we come back to time and time again, which is how do we make sure that our customers can effectively use our product in the context of their business? That is awesome. I love what you guys are doing. I'm curious to know more about how you and David, correct me if I'm wrong, you live out in California, right? Yes. And he lives in Washington, D.C. Yeah. And you run a business together. How did you learn how to do that from opposite sides of the country? Um, well, it's it's funny because we've actually never lived in the same city or even time zone at the same time. So when we worked together at Envoy, I was in California at the time. He was in Colorado. And so we just figured out how to work really well together by saying like, Hey, let's, you know, hold each other to these standards and let's say what we're responsible for. And then we'll keep each other accountable as we go through and work on these things. And so I think naturally we got educated on how to work with each other remotely. And then I guess the other thing too, is that both of us like to go places too. I mean, I loved coming here. Um, I'm really excited to check out, you know, Broadway a little after this, but Um, You know, David's the same type of way. Um, We're very different people for sure, but we like to go places together. And I think that's let us, given us the opportunity to treat the times we have working together as like, you know, almost sacrosanct. Like it's like, is that the right word? I don't know. (laughs) They're going to say it is. (laughs) Josh can edit if it's not. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So like we we treat our time time together as, you know, like very precious time, sacred time. There we go. Um, Very sacred time. And that time also lets us work better together remotely too. Cause then we know like, okay, cool. You're off doing this and you're off doing this and then we'll come back together and then we'll go off, do this and go off, do this and come back together. So I think it's led to like a very efficient business. Um, The challenge from that perspective is that like, Sometimes it's not always best to have a very efficient business. Um, like you want people to feel like they're a part of something bigger too. And I'll say that like no no company's really exactly figured out how to solve that problem, no. but there's a lot of things you can do that you kind of just have to intentionally do that you wouldn't do if you were in person. Um, so oh, yeah. things like, hey, during this type of conversation, camera's gonna be on. Or during this type of conversation, um, you know, we want to make sure that you are actively participating. And if you're not actively participating, you're going to get booted out of the conversation. So some of those things you just kind of have to intentionally bake it into uh, the culture. But I would say that we just kind of came naturally after working remotely together. And like I said, we always meet up 
at least, you know, once a quarter in real life too, um, just to do a level set there. Yeah, I get exactly what you're saying. I was actually incredibly surprised because I do these interviews and talk to people I know constantly and catch up. And then when I'll join a sales call for the production company, I'd say 35% of the time, you know, that they just have their camera off mm-hmm. and they're, and I'm like, what are you doing? We're at work. Yeah. Like we're trying to figure out if like we could, we should be doing something together, if this is going to be useful for you or not. And, and so the idea that your people feel that it's okay to do these calls with their camera off to me is foreign. I'm not saying it's right or wrong as like an arbitrator of, of how you should do video calls, but they are called video calls. But it definitely for me was foreign because I could totally believe that back in, you know, the early 2000s or when people first started doing it. But now, I mean, cameras expected to be on. Yeah, I think, it, again, it just all goes back. It's like, I'm not going to make a judgment call as to whether camera's on or off or right for We want you to for the culture, show. Right, yeah. yeah. We <laughs> want you to take official position. <laughs> <laughs> But I no, my official position is that you need to be intentional about it. Okay. You need to be intentional about like what your culture is when you are distributed. Um, because if you don't be intentional about it, there's nothing else you can really attach to. Um, and especially for a company like ours, like our our mission is in the mission of all of our customers, right? You think about what we're doing, like it's exchanging data between businesses, right? We're agnostic to the industry. It's not like we're out, you know curing cancer, helping with COVID relief, making sure that like underprivileged, you know, children are able to get, you know, the right medical care. But we have customers that do all three of those things. And so a lot of what needs to drive us together is in our mission to see our customers be successful. And so one of the things that we've done quite intentionally is pull a lot of our customers into the ethos of the culture of our business, right? It's all about them. And that really humanizes things. But as you mentioned, right, like you got to have your face showing, you got to have, you know, you got to be present um, in order for that to, to really, really connect with you. And we established guidelines early on. So we did sponsorships for the first several years. Then some of our sponsors asked us to start making shows. And that was about 13, 14 months ago. And when we started doing these shows, we had to learn. And I was transparent with everyone that's like, hey, you're the third show we're doing and we're still figuring out our processes. But one of the most important things was, you know, we're joining their marketing team essentially to produce Mm -hmm. the show. And we're, first of all, video. Second of all, you know, well-dressed. And what that means is, you know, loosely defined, but we know it when we see it and it's in the culture. Um, and then, you know, you're just expected to be bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and, and looking professional when you're joining these calls with, you know, this other team. And so figuring out how to to do that was was an interesting thing, but we've got it down. And I get what you're saying about being efficient. You can get efficient and then things start to get quiet. And you're like, how do I build this? I love that you have customers that are doing, you know, amazing things like that. And you figured out how to pool their stories and connect them with your employees. Yeah, and I, I think the the other benefit too of being remote as founders is it really encourages, you know, hiring all across the country, which by itself gets you a lot of like diversity and thought and background of folks in the business. And we haven't perfected this by any means, but but like trying to systematize that. I, I mean, I'm from Atlanta, Georgia, right? Like get a couple beers with me and this accent's going way off. <laughs> but like, I love, you know, I was sharing with people about barbecue and I'll like post a picture like, hey, I just, you know, smoked a couple pork butts this weekend. And then someone else will come in and all of a sudden we'll start talking about like, what's our favorite, you know, rubs that we want to put on them. And then you might have someone who's like, I, I've never even seen a barbecue before because I live in, you know, you know, this part of Europe and like, this isn't a thing for us. Like it's, it's really cool to be able to have that type of like cultural exchange happen naturally in the business. But like I said, you still have to be intentional about it, right? You still have yeah. to give people forums and give people rituals within which they can exchange this type of thing and build that connection up over time. And then the vegetarian comments and you just boot them out of the Slack channel. Oh boy, yeah, I mean, we might. (laughs) There's actually a secret barbecue channel that we keep pretty locked down so that that, no, I'm just kidding. It's called Barbecue Masters. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But yeah, it's, uh, you know, that's the other thing too, is I think when you have a business like that where it's pulling people from all walks of life, right? Like you mentioned, there's some people who like, 
they have particular sensitivities and there's other folks who might have, you know, things that they don't want, you know, you to know about in their life. And that's totally okay too, right? Mm -hmm. Like it sort of lets people engage in areas of like an interest or professional strength, but only if you design it that way. Absolutely. Now, David has horses instead of kids currently. Oh, <laughs> do you have horses or kids <laughs> or neither? I have an almost two-year-old toddler. Okay. Boy, girl. Girl. Yeah. Uh, yes. She is getting to that phase where she's just opinionated about everything, mm-hmm. including things where I feel like she shouldn't need to have an opinion on. But you know what? That's okay. I mean, it's part of the adventure. And um, I love her death. She's... Uh, She's getting into her ABCs now. Um, you know, the alphabet goes A, B, C, D, H, I, J, K. So we'll see how long I can ride that wave. Um, she also thinks that orange is red. So I might just uh, see if we can get all the way to kindergarten with that before she gets scolded by the teacher, or more likely me. Yeah. Um, but no, we have a lot of fun together. It's really great, I think, having a kid. And, you know, they say nothing prepares you for having kids. No. But I'll say that the closest thing you can probably get is being a startup founder. Right. Um, Lots of nights without sleep, worrying about what's going to happen. You know, how are we going to make ends meet? Getting really frustrated and not being able to understand what's going wrong. Um, a lot of things are fairly similar, um, oh, yeah. but I, I really love having her. And yeah, we we moved out to California last year from Atlanta just to be closer to my wife's family. They're mm-hmm. all from the Bay. So okay. um, we moved back out there and she gets to see her grandparents every day, which is Great for her and great for us too, because we can both keep working. That is awesome. Yeah. yeah, there's nothing that'll prepare you. But if you were to pick something, entrepreneurship's a good place to start. <sighs> and if you really, really want to have fun, become an entrepreneur and have a kid at the same time. Oh, yeah. Because that's yeah. that's tough. You, you did that. How long has Flatfile been around? So we've been around, what year is it? 2023. <laughs> yeah, 23. <laughs> <laughs> when you have a kid in a company, I guess you ask questions like yeah. that, right? Um, I guess we've been around for five years, but okay. actually like incorporated and running as a business for four. Okay. So it's been about half the time the company has been around um, yeah. that I've had her. And one thing that we try to do with our business, and I think this a lot of this comes from me, is just try to be really fa- family friendly as a business. I think almost half of our, if not more than half of our employees have at least one kid. Mm-hmm. We talk about our kids all the time. They get invited, you know, they're invited to certain meetings if they want to sit in. And I think it's just, especially because we're all apart from each other, right? Like feeling like we can be part of each other's families. Um, I can name the the kids' names for almost everyone in the company, even though I've never met 99% of them, I'd say. There might be one or two kids I've met, but that's it. So it's uh, it's really nice to be able to have that. And I think the the parenting journey also teaches me a lot about leadership, right? <laughs> the leadership journey and the startup journey, um, whether it's, you know, working with someone who disagrees with you, right? Like if you as an executive are trying to set strategy, sometimes you'll have people in the business who decide that they don't agree. And how do we, you build this culture of alignment? Like, no, I don't want to play with the crayons. I want to play with the markers, right? Like, how do I, how am I going to convince this, you know, not even two-year-old, you know, to say, no, we're going to play with the crayons, right? Like, and a lot of those lessons that you learn in patience and understanding and coming from their perspective really get dialed in when you're a parent. Yeah. You figure out that you have to put yourself in their shoes and figure out what the carrot is. 100%. 100%. I, so I have three. And what goes through my mind as a mental image is back in the, I don't know, 50s to 70s, whenever the computers were so big that you would walk into the room and it would be, the computer would be a, a room where you could yeah. physically grab large parts of it and replace them. And, and it's so easy to understand how a computer works when it's so big and right in front of you, now it's all compressed down and it's, if you came across it, you'd be like, I don't know what this alien technology is, right? But when you're working, raising kids, it's all the human things, but really big, just like really, really big and obvious. So it actually helps you understand the interpersonal relationships that you have at work and in your life by having to raise the kids. Oh yeah, and and also to engage and explain mm-hmm. concepts to people. This our our, um, our head of platform was actually 
doing a session with our team internally yesterday. And he started off the session talking about like a port, a shipping port. We were talking about like the event-driven nature of the flat file platform. But he started out talking about ships. Yeah. Like literally the first agenda item was Stephen talks about boats. And I love that because I know that comes from him having a couple of kids mm -hmm. and him having to really be able to understand and explain these complex concepts in the world, whether it's computers or whether it's, you know, why does the sun go down at night to, you know, his, his kids. So it's a really great opportunity. It's a lot of work, but I think that work is more than repaid in the joy you get of seeing this other person really come into their own and understand this world they're in. Oh, 100. It's the best and worst thing. It's super incredibly hard and mm -hmm. it's also beautiful and amazing. Yeah. And you just, you know what I've been thinking about it now because two was really hard. Third, the third wasn't that hard, but the second one was like, felt like at five, you know. <laughs> but what the, the perspective I took to convince myself and sell myself on this, this path is that I've seen pictures of old people dying in a hospital bed alone. And I've seen pictures of old people dying at their house surrounded by the 72 grandkids and extended family that came from their four or five kids. And when I have to pick an option, I'm like, this is me doing the difficult, like we're entrepreneurs. Yeah. We do that incredibly scary, difficult thing constantly because we want a better life, right? That's, mm -hmm. that's one of the drivers and it's hard. So that's the difficult thing is having the kids and raising them is the price that you pay yeah. to be able to die well. Yeah. Uh, not even just die well. Like, I mean, gosh, this, when are we releasing this again? April. Okay. Yeah. So I can say this. My, uh, so my dad's birthday is coming up next week. Right. And like, I'm going to fly into town and take him to the home opener for the Braves. Like he, oh, don't, nice. he don't know that just yet, but by the time this comes out, he'll know that because That's a big deal for him. it'll be a week away. It's a big deal for him. Yeah. And so, yeah, I think it's just something that pays off dividends. It, you know, being able to have a family and also, to have people who can relate to what it is that you're doing. One of the good things too, though, is with all the difficulty and all the good, one of the, the things that I have figured out and why I don't encourage a workaholic culture at my company is when things, when you're not spending time with your, your family or the people that are in your life or in your community, and those relationships aren't maintained and have energy to put into them, then the work you're doing, like if, if your wife is upset at you, right? The work, you're not as good at work. You're just not. Because yeah. I've had a great relationship with my wife and I've had an average, you know, it's just an yeah. up and down. That's how life goes. Luckily, it's been, you know, steady on the up since we both decided, I think we're like eight years, nine, 10 years into our relationship. But we both made this point that like, okay, you, 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 you go get married, and you realize, oh, I'm going to get to the ring and we're going to stay forever. But then you you live out seven or eight years and then you realize, wow, this is forever. And now you understand on a larger scale what forever is. And so we made the decision to get married probably like six years after we got married, essentially, like in our minds, we didn't do another ceremony or anything. But the past two or three years have been fantastic because... I've been not one foot out the door. I've just been like completely investing. And that, that took a lot and uh, for, for me to get there. Yeah, and I, I think that's, you know, kind of hearkening back to earlier when we were talking about you know, bringing humanity and serving human beings back into this. Like serving human beings also means, you know, serving yourself as a mm -hmm. human being, right? Like, and, and also treating all your employees like human beings. Like we, we actually, we can't make this official, but we have an unofficial, official um, minimum vacation policy mm -hmm. at work. And basically says like, hey, you have to take off four weeks every year, right? Like we need you to take time off to be with your family, be with your friends and do the things that you love and want to do. And also just to, you know, pull inspiration from other parts of your life. Except for the fact that we made exceptions for mm -hmm. myself and for David. And... I, this was kind of hitting me a little bit last year because we chose to move to California kind of for the same reason. It was like, it was so hard with, you know, just us and the kid and we were both working and I'm an entrepreneur and we're like, don't know what's going to happen with our startups. Mm -hmm. And we just said, hey, let's move back to California and cut out some of that uncertainty. But I did the same type of reevaluation when it came to how I was treating myself and taking time off and my health. I was in great shape, but I remember the first couple of years of the business, I was at the gym every day. Mm -hmm. I was going out to play golf. I was going to watch baseball games. And that just kind of fell off. 
And I realized like, I, I need to do something that feels really hard to me, which is take real time off from this business. It's so hard, um, but like, you have to be that good example to the rest of your team if that's what we're saying. I'm like, oh, you can't just say that and not do it. I had someone literally say, Eric, I have not seen you take a vacation since I joined two and a half years ago. Go take vacation. Yeah. <laughs> like I was having people in the business telling me to go take time off. And it was partially, you know, for me, but it also was partially for them. They're like, I feel like I can't, you know, go do all these things you say I should do because I don't see you doing the same thing. Yeah. And so now I've got like a home gym, you know, we're taking mm-hmm. a couple week vacation in a few months. Like we're, we're actually like doing the things and investing in the life that we want to have, which actually makes me better at business, like better at work, right? Like I can't remember the last time I stayed up after midnight working, um, which maybe is sacrilege to say. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, no, no. Like it's just, there are some companies that like require your employees chew Adderall all day and stay up for 23 hours. That, mm-hmm. that, there is a culture of that. I'd say mm-hmm. it's the 20%, it's not the 80%, but yeah. that culture does exist. And when I found out it exists, I was like, well, well, I also used to work a ton Right? Because when you're starting your business, you don't know how much work is enough work. You haven't figured out the system to actually make money. So you're just constantly going and going and going. Mm -hmm. And then I got it to the point where, okay, we have a, we're making money. Like it's, it's going. And then at that point, that was about three years ago is when I started taking weekends off. And, and then I stopped and then I, I did that for a while. And then I stopped at five and holidays. And so now I had only worked till five and now it's even easier cause they can just walk over here and, yeah. and say, Hey daddy. But, uh, doing that is so hard. And it reminds me of when I was in software engineering full time, because when you're trying to solve a problem and it's all in your head and you're working hard on it, you don't want to stop. But if you get up and go take that walk, your brain does this thing or whatever it is, it resets and it gives you a fresh perspective. So almost every time that we have a holiday season around like the new year, it's scary, right? But you can rethink everything about your business from the outside in a way that you can't do on a weekend. You know, you have to get bored. That's actually something hard to do. I I was going to say like, I think the hardest part about this is when you really care about what it Mm -hmm. is that you're doing. If you're really engaged with your work, or whatever it is that you're doing, it's so hard to take time away from that, right? Because it feels like like this well, this is my hobby. Like I want to do more. Like I I have the energy, but when you have that, you're still neglecting other parts of what make you a whole human. Um, I mean, unless you're Jeff Bezos, but um, you know, like basically, like you have to absolutely treat yourself like the holistic human that you are and not forget about those things once you find that problem that's really engaging. Otherwise, that problem consumes you. And like you said, you actually become less effective at solving that problem when you aren't treating yourself like you know, a real person. Absolutely. I got into woodworking a f- three or four months ago just because I needed a hobby. And what the mistake I was making was every hobby I would pick would be a hobby that was required a screen in some sort. Mm-hmm. Learning a guitar, you can watch videos on guitar, YouTube. You're playing video games, well, that's obvious, that's video games. But so many things required internet, computer interface connection. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I still need to watch some YouTube videos as I'm learning to, to do certain things, but 80, 90% of it, it's just music on in the background, cutting wood, sketching stuff out on my notebook and figuring out how to do it. And after picking up that hobby, that has helped a lot because it's essentially a fun activity that doesn't require technology. And that sounds like a dream to me. I mean, I love fishing, right? And again, you can have fishing without technology. You can have fishing with a little bit of technology. That's fine. Um, The challenge is, is just giving yourself the mental space to feel like you can do that. I hadn't been in a couple of years because I have a kid, um, but I can't wait till she's old enough to go fishing. And like, there's so many other things like this out there that are just great opportunities to disconnect. And I guess I said that's a dream because to say, say what I said at the beginning, right? Like I'm a, I'm a laggard, right? Or at least an early majority yeah. um, when it comes to technology adoption. Like personally, I just enjoy being able to connect with humans. Yes. Um, and I think most of us deep down really just want to do that. We want to connect with humans in whatever way, you know, our, our, you know, 
personality, Myers-Briggs personality yeah. test tells us we do, but it's absolutely important. And it's important when you come to think about crafting a business too. Like I want, I want the people in my business to be able to go say, oh yeah, we went out to dinner the other night. Awesome. Or we, you know, went to go see a concert. There's a guy on my team, uh, Colin, I'll give him a shout out. So he did this challenge last year where he listened to a music album every day, like a whole album mm-hmm. every single day. And he posted the album every single day. And by the time we hit, I want to say like March, there were like a dozen people in the business who were listening to a whole album every single day. And then they started like a music club and all this. And it was just like, this is the type of thing mm-hmm. that we need to encourage and do as a business. Um not just sort of the production of the output. And it's a hard thing for me to say because I love the efficiency of a business, but I think it's like as long as you can effectively find the balance between that focused and non-focused time, that you're going to get a better outcome no matter what. Well, you know you're doing something right when that emerged from your garden and it wasn't something you went out and did. Yeah. Because when for me, that's the most rewarding thing and that that's how I monitor if I'm on the right track and have the right people. Because as you know, I mean, you have over 50, 70 people, 100 people now. How, how many people do you uh, have? We have close to 70 actually. Okay, yeah. so you've figured out that what type of person works well and then how to get them involved in the culture and and all of that. And it takes a while for a business to figure that out. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely does take a while to figure it out. But, you know, I'll tell you also being a founder, like it's important to participate in that too. Mm -hmm. Like I, I feel like a founder for everything related to what we do at Flatfile. And then we have this uh, we have this Slack channel called Parenting, mm-hmm. and then immediately I feel like an entry level employee yep. <laughs> because we've got a, a ton of other parents with kids who are way older. Sometimes multiple kids. Uh, my good buddy Nick, who's our um, he focuses on like platform and partnerships, but he was one of our first investors and now an executive of the company. He has three girls. Mm-hmm. And I'm just like, man, I'm struggling with one. How do you do it, man? So like. It's it's really great to be able to have that and to be able to show that like, hey, I'm a part of this group of humans who are have this thing that's brought them together as a shared goal, but we all have our different areas of expertise and skill and we want to learn from each other in exchange. And I think that just keeps people interested and engaged when I go into the parenting channel and I say, hey, you know, Elena decided she wanted to poop in the bathtub. Like, what do I do about that? And yep. I'm going to get a dozen answers from people who are like, oh, let's try this, or I ran into this, or maybe you should think about you know, adjusting the order of what you do here. And it also helps them feel like they're contributing mm-hmm. to that society, essentially, that we've built. Yes. We could talk for like 100 hours about parenting. <laughs> yes, probably. Um, <laughs> we really, made a podcast, man. Thank you. Appreciate you having me. This no. is awesome. Thank you so much for listening. And if you found this episode useful, please share it with a friend or a colleague who you think would get value from it. And if you have topics that you'd like to hear discussed on the podcast, either add me on LinkedIn or send me an email, joel at moderncto.io. Every time I get an email or LinkedIn message, it absolutely makes my day and inspires me to keep going.